Let's start this way. Are, are you, no, yes, let's start this way. Are you obsessed with life change? Are you? Uh, the top 10 best-selling Christian books in 2018, according to the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association, the ECPA. Uh, here are the top 10 books. Are you obsessed with life change? Here's number 10. So we're going to do a drum roll all the way down to number one. Number 10, this is the day. This is also a New York Times bestseller. Eight of the 10 are New York Times bestsellers. So what we are about to look at is not only what the church deems important, but what the culture deems important. So eight of these 10 books that are bestsellers in the Christian world are bestsellers everywhere. So here we go. This is the day. Uh, here's the tagline. Reclaim your dream, ignite your passion, live for your purpose. In other words, this is a book about life change. Number nine, everybody always, this is also a New York Times bestseller, Becoming Love in a World Full of Setbacks and Difficult People. So this is a book about life change amidst difficult places and with difficult people. Number eight, there is more. This is an international bestseller. Uh, when the world says you can't, God says you can. So this is a book about life change amidst the negative voices in the world all around you. Number seven and six are from the same author, and they're similar books, so we're just going to pull them together. Jesus Calling for Christmas and Jesus Calling. These are devotional books uh, designed for this, to enjoy the peace of God in his presence. So one for the Christmas season, one for 345 other days of the year. And I'm going to try to get... Is that all right? Okay. Okay, then there's another one called Racing to the Finish, also a New York Times bestseller, the story of Dale Jr. Uh, Earhart. Uh, this is a book about racing to the finish line. It's a book about living a successful life. It's a book about getting where you need to go and where you want to go. It's a book about success and accomplishment and achieving your goals. So this is a book about life change. And then number Four, The Total Money Makeover, another bestseller, five million <laughs> copies have been sold. This is a, quote, a proven plan for financial fitness. So this is a book about changing your life by getting yourself financially fit. Handling and relating to money differently will impact your life. So again, this is another book about life change. And then number three, coming at number three, The Five Love Languages, also a New York Times bestseller. Now, I remember when this one came out, so this one's been out there for a long time and is one of the top sellers still. And here's the tagline, The Secret to Love That Lasts. This is a book about life change in a love relationship. Number two, it's not supposed to be this way. Another New York Times, so if you're guessing, the only two that were not New York Times bestseller were those two devotional books. It's not supposed to be this way. Finding unexpected strength when disappointments leave you shattered. This is a book about life change. Amidst the shattering realities of life. Then, this is my favorite, and this is number one. Girl, wash your face. <laughs> Tagline, stop believing the lies about who you are so you can become who you were meant to be. This is a book about life change. Are you obsessed with life change? It's a human obsession. Are you obsessed about life change personally with a personal struggle in your life 
with a, uh, a deep character flaw. You just can't fix some deep defect about you that you wish wasn't true about you and you wish you could fix and you wish would go away and so does everybody else around you. Is there a place of pain, a place of suffering, a place where you're undone in your life that you wish could change? That you're in a wilderness that you wish would change? Are you obsessed with life change for a spouse? For a child, for a friend, or for that person you just can't stand? Are you obsessed with life change for a relationship you're in? For a place? Uh, maybe it's your home you want to change. Maybe it's your school that you want to change. Maybe it's an institution that you want to change. Every four years, we have something we do in the United States where everybody wants the government to change. Everybody at all levels. Do you want a neighborhood to change? Do you want an impoverished area to change? Welcome to a mini-series on the mystery of life change. A human obsession. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. This is a reading from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. So God, we ask that uh, during these next couple of weeks that you would grant clarity to our minds and realness to our heart. Would you shine on the page and would you, um, would you meet each person where they need to be met? 
Would you grant a breakthrough? Would you grant a, um, a living encounter experience with you and your salvation in a way that um, reaches and renews? And we ask this in your name, amen. Okay, so perhaps you can relate to this story. Years ago, a year after Nancy and I got married, uh, I was in the middle of an evangelistic conversation in a place called Wilden, New Jersey, to a group of uh, probably, I don't know, five to eight uh, inebriated, half-dressed, 20-something-year-olds. Uh, I was talking to them about their need for Jesus and their need for his salvation. When all of a sudden, in the middle of this conversation, I mean in the middle of this conversation, there was this terrible thought that just intruded into my whole being while I'm talking to them about Jesus and his salvation. And here it was. Jeff, why do you as a Christian need Jesus? And it was so shattering, and the void was so dark, and it was like, ah. And I didn't know how to answer it, but I kept on going, and I took some solace in the fact that probably two or three of these folks indicated they wanted to trust Jesus. So I moved on, but I couldn't shake it. Now, I want you to know that I was no stranger to ministry up to this point. I had logged probably about seven to eight years. If you count my time at college, you had two more, probably about nine 10 years of campus ministry in the Ivy League, Brown, Harvard, all over the world, unreached areas, starting campus ministries, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, and despite on being on the front lines of ministry, talking to skeptics all over the world, talking to Christians all over the world, uh, I was exhausted. But it wasn't the good kind of exhaustion. It's not the kind where Jesus said, look, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. There's always more work, dude. Okay, yeah, there's always more work. The harvest is plentiful. There are few laborers. There's always more work to do. There's always more work that can be done in 24 hours in the kingdom of God. Okay, I get that. But we're not talking about that good kind of an exhaustion of laying yourself out. We're talking about an exhaustion that went down to the roots of my being and shook my existence, and I couldn't shake it, no matter how hard I tried. And listen, I tried everything. I tried spiritual disciplines. I tried effective ministry practices. I tried different theologies and traditions of life change. I tried various spiritual secrets and successes and techniques I listened endlessly to the teaching of favorite pastors and teachers and bestsellers over and over again. <laughs> I tried and researched multiple views on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, multiple views on biblical principles that work for others. I chased them all down. And if you know me, I chased them all down. For a while, I even thought life and ministry was about the it factor. You either had it or you didn't. And if you did, thank God you're going to survive in this life. And you might be one of the rare people that actually thrive in this life. I tried it all, but I was not getting better. I felt myself getting worse. Perhaps you can relate. A year later, I was in church history class at seminary. Burned out before it was popular. 
and disillusioned from chasing the next thing because I had chased them all and I was so disillusioned with the next thing. And the professor there, that, this guy named Dr. John Hanna, he kept talking about the gospel. Gospel, gospel, gospel. Um, and it was annoying. I kept thinking, evangelism, evangelism, evangelism. It's what the unbeliever needs to hear. It's how someone becomes a Christian. And I kept thinking, what are you talking about? And about halfway through the semester, I couldn't stand it anymore. And finally, I went up to him after class and I said, listen, Dr. Hanna, you keep talking about the gospel. Gospel, gospel, gospel. What are you talking about? In classic Dr. Hanna fashion, he did not answer my question. He asked me a question, which was even more annoying. He said, Jeff, do you know what my philosophy of teaching is? No, Dr. Hanna, I don't, and I don't care. <laughs> Jeff, if you throw a brick into a pack of dogs, the one that yelps is the one you hit. Are you calling me a dog? And what he said next began a gospel revolution in my life, my relationships, my ministry. Because what he talked about, I was so curious about because it was the only, he talked about the gospel so frequently and so freely that I started feeling electrified and I started feeling energized and before I knew it his grammar of the gospel was working on me down at the roots of my existence my very being this is my hope for you this is my hope for you in this mini-series that the grammar of the gospel will reach the roots of your being. This is the hope for us as a church. That the grammar of the gospel will reach and renew and energize the roots of our being. This is our collective hope for Waco. That the grammar of the gospel will be the end to the mystery of life change for you. Yes, it's mysterious, but it's mysterious because it's something God does. It's not mysterious in that we need to be ignorant of it. There's a real difference here. And that's exactly what Paul says because one of the first things he says to all of us is he says in this passage, don't you know this? Don't you know? So here's the question before us today. It's very simple, but it's not easy. It's going to require mental sweat, which means you and I are going to need to go to the school of understanding. You're going to have to think hard. We're going to have to think hard. Christianity is about thinking hard. It's about clarity of the mind. It is the life of the mind. The mind is the way to the heart. Now, the mind and the heart go together. In the biblical worldview, there's no separation. There's a separation in our culture today, but there's not a separation in the Bible. The heart is one reality that has, it's like a diamond that we talk about the gospel that has many different cuts in it. When, when the Bible looks at your inner life, it describes it as a heart. 
It's something that is emotional and feels deeply. It's, it needs to be real to us. We need to grasp it. It needs to hit home in the heart, that reality. Then there's a, a mental reality where there's clarity of the mind. The to would say there's understanding, there's light to the mind, heat to the heart, but it's one heart. It's one inner being just being described from two different ways. So we are going to need to think hard. We need clarity of the mind about this. And we're going to need to grasp grace. We have to go to the school of experience. You have to experience grace or you won't get it. Many stumble right here just because of what I just said. Before Paul even gets started, this is where we stumble because grace is so strange to us. Grace is a UFO. It's an unidentified flying object in this life. Grace doesn't come natural to you and me. It is something from the outside. It's not something you can find on the inside. You can't think it up. You can't feel it up. You can't even comprehend it. I can't comprehend it. It's nowhere within the reach of the synapses and the way that our brains work. It is a strange thing, this grace of God. It's an unidentified flying object. What is that? That's how the Bible shows us grace. If you ask, what is that? You can know you're on the right path. So here's the question. It's straight from the Apostle Paul. He, asked, he was asked this question all the time in his ministry. So this question is always asked, just like it's asked today. So this is not a foreign question to anybody. Here it is. Verse 1, are we to continue? I'm going to give you the literal translation. Are we to continue in the sin that the grace may abound? So if we are saved by grace, if we're saved by grace salvation, if it's about a righteousness received, not a righteousness achieved, if it's about a grace salvation and not a work salvation, if it's about a Jesus salvation and not a self-salvation, if it is all about the grace, how do lives really change? How does your life change if it's all about grace? Now, the critic, if he asks this question, think of a critic. This is an opponent, opponent of Paul, opponent to the grace, the way the text says it, with a definite article, the grace, the grace salvation, Jesus and his salvation, a critic. A critic will come to this, the grace, and will say something like this. Well, if we're saved by grace, then why not send your heart out? This is an opponent. This is a critic. Look, sin doesn't matter if it's all about grace. Let grace abound. <laughs> Let sin and grace abound. Because if it's all about grace, it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter if you're good or you do good or be good. Who cares? It's all about grace. This is a critic. Or they say something like this. If we're saved by grace, then why be holy? There's no reason. There's no incentive to be holy. If, you're, if, it's, if it's by grace, why obey? I have no reason to obey if it's by grace. I have no reason to be holy if it's by grace. And do you see what's implied in the question of the critic? Do you see it? There's two incredible things implied in this critic's question. Grace alone, this is one, grace alone does not and cannot really change a life. That's what's implied. Grace can't change a life. Grace needs help. 
So to change a life, it's grace plus something we do. Grace plus something we activate. And if you look at the books and if you listen to the traditions, there are endless options for grace plus something. The something goes on forever. The something could be the law. The big law, the Ten Commandment law. Grace plus keep the law. Or grace plus be thin. Grace plus be capable. Grace plus be an achiever. Or it could be grace plus your devotion. Sincerity. Desiring God. Grace plus an act of your will, a, a commitment you make, a surrender, a yielding. Grace plus tapping into the Holy Spirit, and here's how you do it. Grace plus a biblical principle, a practical how-to. Grace plus just do it. Just do it. Grace plus a spiritual discipline. Grace plus, you know, just do ministry. Um, here's a practical, effective ministry practice. I mean, the list is endless, right? And do you see what also is implied in the question of the critic? Grace is not a meaningful motivation for life change. So not only does grace need help, grace plus something, because grace cannot and will not, is not able to change the life, but grace is not a meaningful motivation to want to change. It's not a, a present power to enable you to change. And then you got to ask yourself, okay, so if grace is not the motivation in the Christian life, grace is not motivating us in the Christian life. If grace is not a meaningful motivation, what is? What would take grace's place if it's not the meaningful motivation in life change? You only have two options. Fear and pride, which are the same thing. We could say fear on this side, self-confidence on this side. So what would fear motivation look like? It would look like this. Obey or be disconnected in some way from God, his love, his acceptance, his blessings. Obey or experience suffering in your life. Obey or doom's coming. Obey, or you'll become like those people. Obey, or you won't measure up. Obey, or you'll be that person you said you can't stand and could never be. How many people, I would never say this because I want to be like my dad, but how many people in life say, I will never, ever be like my dad. And that's the motivation, fear, the motivation for their whole life, for why they change, if they change. Because we're talking about biblical change, real change here. We're not talking about behavioral management change. Obey or others will think less of you. What will others think of you if you do this? What will others think of you if you don't do this? 
So it's not just what you think of yourself, but it's what other people think of us. Do you see fear? So if grace isn't a meaningful motivation, then what is? Fear is. And then the other side, it's self-confidence. I'm so thankful I'm not like them. And I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher of you who spiritually struggle. I'm a teacher of you who are spiritually less than me. I'm a teacher because I know what's right. I know what's right theologically. I know what's right spiritually. I know what's right missionally. There's a lot of self-righteous ministry that goes on. I do it. Everybody does it. But we need to identify it. Self-confidence. Well, I'm on a mission from God because God told me this. God gave me this. I have the, the truth as opposed to the truth having me. I'm especially anointed. This is all self-confidence kind of approaches to life change. Okay, so that's the critic. The critic would look at that question. That's how the critic will ask that question. Uh, grace can't possibly change a life. Uh, grace can't possibly be a meaningful motivation in a life change scenario. But what about the normal, ordinary, messy Christian? How would he ask this question? How would she ask this question? Uh, someone who's just trying to figure out grace, salvation, and how a life changed. Someone that's saying, how does a gospel life work? How does a grace salvation not only reach you, but renew you and heal you and put you back together again? How does that happen? That's a different way of approaching this question, isn't it? So the question before we even begin is, which one are you? Are you the critic or are you the ordinary, messy Christian? Are you a critic who looks at a grace salvation for sanctification and goes, yeah, explain that one, dude. Or are you someone who's trying to figure it out? How does grace shape a life? It's not only grace that got me in, okay, so now it's not grace got me in, and then the critic says, okay, now it's you and God working this thing out. Get to work. But the normal, ordinary, struggling Christian says, but how, how, does, it, how does it now reach me? How does it renew me? How does it change me? If it's grace in the beginning, the ABCs, is it grace throughout A through Z? Which one are you? We're going to focus on the normal, messy Christian who's trying to figure out grace salvation, and then I'll take shots at the critic. It's kind of fair, isn't it? This is church. All right, if we are saved by grace, then how does a life change? Are you ready? Here's Paul's answer is stunning. It's absolutely stunning. It's breathtaking. It's shocking. Here's his answer. You've already changed. You've already changed beyond your wildest dreams. Don't you know that? He says. Look at verse 2. How can we who died to the sin, literal translation, still live in it? Paul is saying something has already happened to you. Something has already massively changed about you. And don't miss this. You didn't do it. It was done for you. What was done for us? 
What was done for you? Here's the answer. You died to sin. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) What is that? You died to sin. What is that? What does that mean? Here's the answer. The answer means if you are a Christian right now, you are separated from. You are separated from the sin. You are dead to the power of the sin. You are freed from the dark realm and Lord called sin. You're no longer in the evil empire. You're no longer in the domination and domain and captivity and slavery and bondage of the dark powers, the sin, the death, and ultimate evil. You're no longer living in the realm of the walking dead. The zombie apocalypse is over. You ever wondered why there are movies called the zombie apocalypse? Or the walking dead and why they're all that kind of stuff takes such traction because they, they're tapping into truth. What's it like to be physically alive but spiritually dead? The Bible calls that the realm, the dark realm of the dark powers, the sin, the death, the evil one. What Paul is saying to you and me if you are a Christian You are no longer a zombie. You're no longer the walking dead. You're no longer physically alive, but spiritually dead. You have massively, epically, cosmically changed. Look at verse 3. Or, here's a little translation. Or, or, do you not know? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, all of us that have been united to Jesus, all of us that have been connected to Jesus, you're united to Jesus, you're connected to Jesus, when you trust him in his salvation, his life, his death, his resurrection, you're connected to. We've seen this in John. Remember, John said faith is entering into. It's it's so deep that it's it's a union. So when we trust him, we're unified into Jesus. This baptism is union with Jesus. So you're united to Jesus. And he's saying, do you not know when this happens? You're baptized into him. When you're united to him, you are united into his death. Paul is saying, don't you understand this? <laughs> Literally, he's saying, do you fail to understand this? In other words, this is what he's saying. He's saying it to the critic. And he he says it to the critic harshly. He says it to the struggling, normal, messy Christian gently. If you understood this, you would not be asking the question. Paul is saying to the critic, dude, if you understood what I'm telling you right now, that you're dead to sin, you wouldn't ask, oh, shall we sin so grace may increase? The question doesn't even show up. So that's one way that if you have a critic talk to you about a grace salvation, you know they have failed to understand this. 
Now, some of you are getting upset because, please, be upset at Paul, not me, because he's the one saying this, not me. Because you don't understand this. You've never heard this before. And you're still stuck at the fact, wait a minute, you mean I can't control my life? I can't change my own life in a biblical way? You mean that it's not just Jesus, you know, saved me as a Christian and now me and Jesus work this thing out? You're still stuck there. Now, I want you to know that Paul understands you because he spends 14 verses trying to explain this. If he just wanted to jab at us, if he just wanted to throw a punch and move out, he would not continue for 14 verses. He would have said, dude, you don't understand this? Go figure it out. Instead, he says, well, let me help. And so here's how Paul helps. He shows us why a messy Christian is no longer a spiritual zombie. Do you see this? Why are we no longer a zombie? Why are we no longer the walking dead? Why are you dead to sin? Here's the answer. Look at verse 6. We know. Again, we have to think hard. He's saying we know. Think about this. Clarity to the mind. We know that the, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer be enslaved to the sin. What's the old self? Well, the old self is the body of sin. He's using an image, and he's using, he's using a proposition, and he's using an image. He's using an idea, and he's attacking an image to it. Here it is. The old self is the body of sin. It's the self. It's the you. It's the real you. It's your old identity. It's your edemic self. It's your collapsed self. It's the self enslaved to sin. It's the self in captivity to the dark powers. It's the self, the you, the identity, the who you are that's physically alive but spiritually dead. The old self is the zombie you. Paul is saying, here's the image. When someone is crucified in the ancient world, they die. Their body hanging on the cross dies. Their very being dies. Their person is wiped from the planet. Jesus, when he was crucified, he became on the cross your old self. He became the zombie you. He became the body of sin. And when he died, your old self died. When he was crucified, the zombie you was crucified. The zombie was destroyed. This is breathtaking. I mean, y'all, this is life change. This is epic life change. This is unimaginable life change. To not be a zombie in the dark powers, enslaved to these realities, to not be in the realm, 
but taken out of it is massive life change. Paul says it this way, verse 5, we have been united with him in a death like his. That's so important, in a death like his. You know what that means? His death is not an ordinary death. It's a death like his. Well, what is a death like his? What is the death of the Jesus? What is the death of the Lord? What is the death of the God? What is a death like his? <coughs> Here's the answer. It was a sin-killing death. It was a death-killing death. It was a zombie-killing death. Paul continues, verse 5, We shall certainly, all right, if we've been united in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So on the cross, Jesus went into the dark powers. Here's what's happening. On the cross, Jesus goes into the dark powers. He goes into the realm of the sin, the death, and ultimate evil. He goes into that realm and becomes enslaved to them. He takes your place. So when he goes in, he's moving you out. He takes your place. He becomes enslaved to the sin, the death. He becomes a zombie. But here's what no one expected. I mean, death didn't expect it. Sin didn't expect it, and certainly the ultimate evil one did not expect it. Is what happens when he went into the realm and he was hanging on the cross. He took the full measure of their fury, the full measure of their hell, the full measure of all the realities, all the things that we say, come, Lord, and end it. He took it all to the cross. Come, please end it. He took every last drop of hell. Can you imagine this moment? This moment was absolutely breathtaking. While he's in there and he's absorbing it all, becoming enslaved to it, they're doing their worst. All of it, all of it, all of it, all of it. And he looks at him and says, is that all you got? And then he took up his life again. And he rises from the dead and takes you with him. That's life change. That's epic, massive, definitive, done once for all, never to be repeated, life change. And if you are a Christian, that is you right now, regardless of how you feel, regardless of your struggles, regardless of your heartache, regardless of your disappointments, regardless if sin looks like, feels like it still has dominion over you. Because your feelings don't dictate this. Your thoughts don't dictate this. Your experience doesn't dictate this. Jesus dictates this. His death did. So a Christian is no longer a zombie. He's no longer one person with one nature. Now, <laughs> this is why we're going to talk about this next week. 
Who are you then, Christian? If you're no longer a zombie, one person with one nature that's dead, but you're now a new person. One person, but here's the catch. You have two natures. And we're going to talk about the dynamics of being one person with two natures next week. It's called Romans 7. But please do not miss this. To not be a zombie is a big deal. To not be just one person with one nature is a very big deal. To be taken out of that realm and made alive so that you're now one person, but you have two natures is a huge deal. It's massive. And the implications of that we're going to talk about next week. But here's what Paul wants you to know now. Here's how we're going to end. Uh, Verse 12 and 13. Let not then the sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its mega desires. Do not present your members to the sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So don't miss this. Being dead to sin, the old self being crucified, no longer being a zombie, being alive to God, a new creation, a new self, is not something to be achieved. It's something to be Believed. Believing this changes you. The gospel is a present power. The gospel reaches and renews and heals. Christianity is the only real Christianity. Real Christianity is the only approach to life change that goes like this. All approaches to life change, religions, belief systems, philosophies, um, I don't know, whatever, those, those books that we looked at and all the books that are out there, just go to a, they're all out there, it's a, it's a massive industry. All approaches to life change today go like this. Become something better. Become someone better. And Christianity says, be who you already are. It's been done for you. Therefore, don't let sin reign, because it doesn't. You are free now, for the first time in your life, to actually fight sin. You are free for the first time in your life as a Christian now to actually learn to change biblically, transformatively. You are free as a Christian to struggle against sin. There is no struggle when you're a zombie. There's a fear struggle There's a self-confidence struggle, but there's not a biblical love-grace struggle of true virtue. Scottish pastor, theologian, seminary professor, popular author, everything, Sinclair Ferguson, describes the epic life change of Romans 6 this way. He says, Paul's not saying to die to sin is to be immune to sin. Paul's not saying to die to sin is to be free from the struggle with sin. Paul is saying you have died to sin, therefore you can now struggle with it. You are free. 
You are free to struggle with sin. You are free to fight with sin. You are free to be who you already are. Amen.